We're in uh, page 871 in the Bibles, Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in the city in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The word of the Lord. Hey, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this opportunity to come to you. Would it be clear that you are the reason we're here? The simplicity of that. Um, would, we, would, would you equip us to, to live well in the city that you've called us to live in? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I, I tell people, I remember the first time I had a serious faith crisis. Um, there was this senior year of high school, this pseudo-epistemology class, where um, we were introduced to this conversation about how do we know things. And we were learning about the limits of language, and I was so, um, I, I was so enthusiastic and earnest that in a one-on-one -on -one with the class instructor, I remember telling him, hey, you know, I'm reading this book, um, about faith. It was this Donald Miller book. And um, I, I, I confided in this instructor, instructor that everything I was learning about, you know, uh, we were in this discussion about how, you know, the, the limits of language and, and how it was strengthening my faith. So like, like, there's this discussion in, in, in this book I'm reading. I tell them that relates Exodus through, 3 and, and God describing himself as I am that I am and, and how that, that overlaps so well with what I'm learning in school about the limits of language. Um, what, what followed, I have this sneaking suspicion, was, was the rest of the semester, um, him sort of like sub-tweeting me in the middle of like what he was teaching us. Um, he would have us read articles about how all the great religions of the world were manufactured and would show us TED Talks you know, of the then new atheists. And um, with this new information, or just these questions that he was putting forward to everyone in the class, um, I started to have a little bit, a lot of bit, of my first real faith crisis. And I remember the scene pretty vividly, and I explained this to some of you before, but I am a preacher's kid. Filipino church, my father is a pastor. And I remember one morning as he was passionately um, sweating through his suit, preaching the good <laughs> word of scripture and thinking to myself at the back, man, if, if this is all made up, then this is a really funny scene. Um, the, the question I think I was asking, right, is um, does this, this life of faith in my Filipino enclave have something to say about to the world out there? And for most of my life, I, I had this Filipino life with church at the very center, and then I had this non-Filipino life with school at the center. And the question was, does this, does this thing that we're doing, is it merely a community building exercise? for a group of people displaced from their homeland? Or does this actually have something to say to the world out there? Um, 
And we, we ask similar questions as grown, grown adults, right? Does this, what we do, you know, the handful of us in this room, does this have something to say to the great city outside? Does it something, have something to say to, to the people in my workplace, to the people I meet in school? Especially in a great city where often it can feel as though Christianity is viewed at as, as largely irrational. Uh, we had some new friends we met. They were explaining to us that, that they were living, they'd been living in SF in San Francisco for some time, and they were, they were considering a move to Southern California because they found that the spiritual climate of San Francisco was very stifling. They said they would tell the story of, of running into people at the workplace at church on Easter, and they'd look at each other, and they'd say, hey, um, this, no one hears about this at our workplace. It's as though they caught each other in an illicit act and, and no one was to know. They would, they would, they would, they would ask him the question, hey, um, th- does this, th- this seems to be a merely provincial thing that we're a part of with no real impact or import on anything else we do. And so the question we're asking this morning, how do we live with joyful confidence as people living in the way of Jesus in a city full of thoughtful people who believe differently. And we do this knowing that we are in, in many ways pivoting. Um, very glad you're with us. Uh, I thought in Labor Day, from my experience working in churches in the city, is like kind of an, a citywide, like don't come to church, like last Sunday. So I, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Um, but we're doing this intentionally because we are inviting people into, to experience the fullness of, of who God is as we start the fall. But, but we want to be honest and say living, like as, as, you know, as the schools start and we interact with parents who are not believers and as you go to great universities and you hear different perspectives and thoughtful people who just believe differently, the question is, what, what is this, what does this have to say to the world out there? Um, so we look at Acts 17, we look at this vignette of Paul in Athens because we want to see how Paul lived with confidence in a city full of contrasting viewpoints so that we can do the same today. And we're going to do this, ju- I mean, this Sunday. Um, we're, we're excited about the series that we have started next week, um, it's where I'm from, as Ariane explained. So the, the goal there is that it's so easy in this city to know a lot of people, but to not feel known. And um, we, we get, you know, the, the hope of this new church is this, you really feel like people are interested in you and your story. Um, and so we want to introduce an activity that really helps us get there. Um, but before we do that, we just want to ask a simple question this morning. How do we live as faithful Christians in this great city? Okay, so, so three things I think we see in this passage, okay? Christianity sends us out into the open, boldly telling of a strange reality, banking on a great promise. Okay, Christianity sends us out in the open to boldly tell of a strange reality, all the while banking on a great promise. We'll start with the first. Christianity sends us out into the open. Read verses 16 and 18 again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And just a little bit of context. Um, Paul is in this, this city of Athens. F.F. F. Bruce, writing in his commentary, explains that this, is, for this city um, is the highest level, represents the highest level of, of culture in classical antiquity. In regards to their art, the sculptures, literature, oratory of this city from centuries before this point, 5th and 4th centuries BCE, it was unrivaled and has never been surpassed. Okay, it's the philosophical hometown, Socrates, Plato, and adopted hometown of Aristotle. You got to remember that Paul was born and trained in the backwater of the empire. And within his region, he had pedigree, but this was the big leagues. And it says that, that he's not only walking in Athens, but he goes to the marketplace. The marketplace uh, is the, the, the agora, right? And it's the center of exchange of ideas. It was the place for cultural connection, news, trends, and ideas. It was the center of the city. It was where you went to learn how the nation's military campaigns were going or got caught up on the latest trends in philosophical thought. It was a place of financial, intellectual, and spiritual exchange. So he's in the city of high culture, goes to the place of, 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 the place of financial, intellectual, and spiritual exchange, and it's, it's here that he gets brought out into. And the main idea is, look, Christianity does have something to say, it sends, and, and, and our belief sends us out into the open. Now, I know that there's temptation to think, oh, like this is just something that I grew up with, and my mom's going to be mad if I don't go to church. But Paul here goes to the city of, of highest culture, goes to the place where all the ideas are, are getting passed around. He says, hey, there's, there's a real truth that, that this Christianity explains. But what does he do there? Well, what, why are we sent out into the open? Why do we go to Washington Square Park, run the risk of a contact high? <laughs> We go because, like Paul, we go to the, to, the, to the marketplace of ideas to feel the ache of the city's people. Paul notices three things, idols, Stoics, and Epicureans. Well, you have to understand that, that idols, right, this Greek pantheon, were humanity's attempt to impose control in a world that feels uncontrollable. Right? The Stoics created a philosophy of rational stability in a world of upheaval, political and otherwise. The Epicureans understood pleasure as the chief end of life. Pleasure was, 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 this, was worth enjoying. The pleasure that was worth enjoying was this life of tranquility. Now, now listen to what they're aching for. These dominant religious systems and philosophies were built on these universal aches and felt needs. What are they aching for? They want order and control in a world that feels uncontrollable. They want stability that's based on the rational faculties in a world that feel that is full of upheaval. They want pleasure in a world of pain. And Paul goes out into the center of this, the, the, where, where the ideas are being exchanged and he realizes that these are not random ideas and thoughts. No, they're, they're, logical, uh, they're logical philosophies based on constructs that are very universal. These ancients long for things that, that we still long for today, order, stability, pleasure. And the temptation 
when, when a person of belief walks out into the marketplace is that we can be so taken by the aches that we're absorbed by the logic. That we, we, can, we, can be, we can be so taken by the aches, we feel that so deeply, that those longings so deeply that we become absorbed by the logic. There, there are places, I mean, we live, you know, in a city that people have heard of before and culture exists, sure. But the reality is that this marketplace, this agora is now everywhere, digitally everywhere. The goal of our world's greatest entrepreneurs, the overlords at Amazon and Meta and Twitter and Google, they want to make it so that no matter where you go, there will be no place where the marketplace will not go with you. And the reality is we're so deep into drinking the Kool-Aid, we've forgotten what our distinct message is. I hope you guys understand is that this agora is powerful. And our missional God sends us into the agora, but instead of shaping it, we get shaped by it. There's this pastor, John Mark Comer. He, you know, there's this big, early 2000s, there's this big sort of like missional movement, sending people into the bars. He's reflecting on this kind of a decade later. He says, we sent people into the bars, but we realized that the bars were shaping the people and the people were not shaping the bars. So Christianity sends us out in the open to feel the ache, but somehow we're not to get absorbed. So how is that possible that we don't get absorbed? Because we go with a mission, which is to boldly tell of a strange reality. Read with me 18b, and then we'll go to 21. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul is walking around Athens. He gets taken to this place where he's, he, they're, they're sharing the ideas and the question is, every, all, the, all the sort of, the narrative of the text is moves to his speech and the question is, what does he say? What is the message? And the message is this, hey, you all have been looking for someone. This someone has come back from the dead. He is the one that you have been looking for. The, the elevator pitch of Christianity has always been that there's someone who's come back from the dead. It's about bodily resurrection. Um, I, I once asked a professor, a seminary professor of mine, hey, how, how did you come to faith? He was going to, um, he, 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 he's a smart guy, I thought. Um, went to you know, Princeton and then did some management consulting before giving it all up to go to seminary. But, but I was really curious because as someone who's grown up in the church, you know, father's a pastor, um, but, you know, stapled to the, to the front pew. Uh, I'm always, and hear me say, like our vision as a church is, you know, there's this cute phrase when we were living in Houston, we heard all these Christians say is, um, you know, whenever some parents uh, went to praying, they'd always say, God, uh, would our kids never know a day that they didn't know Jesus? And then we were like, oh, that's really like profound. And then we kept on hearing it at every dinner party we went to. And I was like, oh, so this is like a thing. And so I, I truly believe, like my hope for my kids is there's never a day that they don't know 
um, that Jesus loves them, died for them, and is coming back for them. But I'm always profoundly interested like, and very, very curious about people who, who decide to go to church, who decide to come to faith, because that's not my story. And so I go to, I go to, to my seminary professor. I was like, look, like, you teach a very, very high view of scripture. I'm like, why? Like, I feel like I'm always have to defend it, you know, because if not, then my identity is lost and I grew up in it and I can't talk to my family anymore. Like, but you don't have any of that. You don't have any of that baggage. Why did you come to faith? And he said, um, he said, it, it all comes down to the resurrection. For him, he was at Princeton and he was, someone shared Jesus with him. And the, the question he needed to ask was, did this resurrection thing happen? Or did it not? Because if it did, then everything changes. Everything hinges on that. Um, N.T. Wright says, resurrection in this first century meant something physically, thoroughly dead became physically, thoroughly alive again. Not simply surviving or entering a purely spiritual world, whatever that might be. Resurrection, therefore, necessarily impinges on the public world. Sometimes human beings, individuals, or communities are confronted with something that they must reject outright or that if they accept it will demand the remaking of their worldview. Which is what my professor was saying. He's saying, look, I had to, I had to ask the question, an honest question for myself. Did Jesus come back from the dead or not? Because if he did, then, then everything, everything is challenged. Everything is remade. Then it challenges any sort of worldview that says it's ultimately about pleasure, like the Epicureans believed. And it challenges all the Stoics who said, look, it's ultimately about this, this rational stability that you can generate from head down. If Jesus came back from the dead, then all of your life needs to be submitted to him. Pastor in the city, Tim Keller said that nothing else can account for the growth of Christianity. People said they saw him and went to their graves, giving up their lives, saying, I saw God in the flesh. I saw a dead man come back to life. There's no possible alternate explanation for the Christian church. You have to understand that Greek and Jewish worldviews were opposed to a physical resurrection, and resurrection was unthinkable and absurd. It was just unthinkable. Then, as it is today. But what these first Christians believe is that they had seen him. And it doesn't matter what you feel, whether it works for you, what questions might be difficult. If he's standing there, then you have to believe him. So the question is, did, what, what do you believe about the resurrection? Now, if you do hold to the resurrection, there's some practical encouragement Look, if Jesus is alive, then you're not trying to convince people of a certain set of beliefs and ideas. All you're doing is merely providing an introduction. Because we think, wow, like how arrogant. Like we, who am I to tell someone what to believe? And I would reframe that this morning. The way to think about it is why would I not introduce someone to someone else who has changed my life and could possibly change theirs? Why wouldn't you make an introduction? One of the great professional skills of the marketplace is connection making, right? You're introducing someone to someone else. You're introducing someone who, who is alive. 
But, but the trick with this is if you make an introduction, you have to know him yourself. And the question is, do you know him? Um, the main idea here is that, look, like all you're doing in the way that you're making introduction is like you're just CCing him on an email. It's like, hey, like, I know a guy. If you, if you look at verses 20 to 22 to 23, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul listened to their felt needs, and he says, look, I know you're looking out into the world, looking for order amid what appears to be chaos, but even here, you don't really know who God is. Here's the thing, he's, Paul is saying, I know him. I know him. Let me introduce you to him. Um, when we were living in Houston, there was, there was a joke that Dave and I used to make that there was this lady in our office, Liz, who just always had a guy for something. <laughs> like, hey, like I, I have a beat up 2000 whatever Honda Civic. Um, I need to sell it. Like no one's going to buy this thing. And Liz is like, hey, I, I know a guy. <laughs> hey, hey, Liz, we're moving and we, we just need a couple of people. He's like, I, got, I know a guy. <laughs> and this is all Paul is doing. He's looking at them, feeling the city's ache, understanding that what they long for is pleasure, stability, right? Order. And he says, hey, I know a guy. Let me introduce you to him. The felt need that God has placed into someone's life is, is, is the vector that leads us to realize that only he can resolve the tension. You, if you've been walking with him, then you know a guy. But even then, like, how do we, just, how do we, how do we live this way? What confidence do we have that as we make introductions, as we CC people on emails, the great skill of the marketplace, making introductions, how do we know that this is something that we can trust? We keep on reading, verse 24 to 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made one man, every nation of mankind, to live on, on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Um, and here's the big sentence. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's not far. So a couple of things worth mentioning about this God, um, Paul says uh, from 24 to 27, he does not live in temples made by man. What he's saying here is, therefore, he cannot be constrained by your constructions, physical and otherwise. He can't be served by human hands. He can't be manipulated toward your ends. If he's dependent on you, then, then you can manipulate how he, how he does his business, but you can't. He's too big. Three, he's determined allotted periods of their dwelling place. Paul is saying, look, he has you right where he wants you. And what's the purpose of that? That you would seek God. But here's the promise. He is not far from you. He uses seemingly ordinary means and directs things in your life so that he can get your attention. 
This is what we were saying this morning. You're not here for Alex. You're not here for anyone on our team. You're here for God. The most important thing in your life is to get your relationship with him figured out. Um, How do we do that? Verse 30 says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We've said this in a previous sermon, but repent is this the sense of the, to change our mind and perspective because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, look, one day you will meet him. An introduction puts you face to face with someone else. And God as a loving resurrected judge wants what is best for you. And right now, he may be pointing to an area of your life that you have not surrendered to him. If you're being honest with yourself this morning, it probably needs to be confessed. And here's the invitation. We're going to have people ready for prayer. They're not here to judge. But intimacy with God is as simple and as hard as confessing to him. And it's a funny thing how this, God, like how this kingdom Advances. It's not a bunch of us solving every problem with extensive expertise. It's a bunch of people surrendering and saying, God, it's so clear what you're asking of me, but I confess that it's hard. But I know that behind the thing that I want, what I really need is your presence in my life. What I really need is to walk with you like you are a friend. This is probably like the most important thing I want us to understand. When we die a set of theological truths neatly bound will not be waiting for us. It will be a person and you can get to know him now. What do you need to confess? Can you trust that the felt need he's placed in your heart only he can resolve, whether that's pleasure, stability, order, that fear that life is so uncontrollable? Do you know this morning that only he can resolve that for you. Don't you pray with me? Father, I pray that, that you would become great in our midst and great in our worship, that that we would see you high and lifted and a vision of you would, would break down our defenses. And as you call us to surrender, constantly surrender, would we see that you are trustworthy, able to hold the fears that we bring. So Father, I ask and we pray even now that as you call things to the surface of places in our hearts and in our lives that we have yet to give to you. Father, I pray that that we would see a gentle, willing, strong Jesus capable of resolving the tensions that we carry. In the name of Jesus, I pray.